my son asked me, how do you put this thing on? And my answer to him should have been, I don't know. <laughs> well, brothers and sisters, it's good to be with you this morning. I, I want to encourage you, um, as someone who's come here um, in the middle of, of these uh, strange times that we live in, and um, just from what I can see, uh, as someone who's, who's visiting you from... Um, a different congregation. Uh, I just admire the way you have kept the um, the work of the church going on under very unexpected um, and challenging changes uh, in, in what we're restricted to do, what we're required and obligated to do uh, for the good of one another. And um, you are you are doing the work of the Lord, and it matters to Him. And it is hard. Things keep changing and continue to change. Even your plans this week uh, to enjoy. Uh, more time altogether outside and then having to have that uh, get postponed. Um, but the Lord sees your work and he's pleased with it. I'm going to read um, uh, just a little bit before our, our passage that I'm preaching on. Um, James 1, uh, the sermon is on James 1, 26 and 27. Uh, but I'm going to start at verse 17 to give us a little bit of context. So James 1, starting at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let's pray. O oh Lord, speak to us. Give us receptive hearts. Give us changed wills. Stir up the spirit that you have implanted in us. Enable us to profit from the word and to build our lives on the work of Jesus Christ through what he accomplished in the gospel, in Christ's name, amen. Do you ever wonder if your life is on track? Do you ever wonder if you're headed in the right direction? The book of James is a diagnostic tool that's very helpful in trying to come to an answer to that question. The book of James, as you may recall, is written by the brother of Jesus, 
And not only is he the brother of Jesus, he is the head of the Jerusalem church. James, in his book, writes to two groups of people, those who are suffering, but also to those who are comfortable, the strange mix, two poles of a spectrum. He deals with hard issues such as trials, religiosity, snobbery in the church, conflict in relationships within the church, and pride, envy. Now, today we're looking at verses 26 and 27, and to set it properly in context, just going to briefly review the verses that lead to our passage. Uh, chapter 1, verses one, uh, 2 through 8, James speaks to suffering people. He shows that in suffering, God gives wisdom. He gives patience as they cry out to him. Verses 9 through 12, James deals with one specific kind of suffering. He deals with poverty and suffering, whatever the nature of it has temptations that come with it. So in verses 13 through 16, James dwells on the nature of temptation and how sometimes when we're being tempted in our suffering, we blame God for our sin and our temptation. That's much easier to do when life is hard. Then from verses 17 through 26, James takes our suffering, takes our temptations, and he puts it into this context of spiritual birth and spiritual growth. God the Father is doing something through all this. He is making us something new. He's producing ongoing moral change in us. God, through all of that, is remaking us so that we resist the sinful desires that are still plaguing us, so that we resist the sinful words, the sinful wrath that wells up and flows from us. One way that God changes us and works this transformation, is he speaks to us. He brings his words to us. We hear scriptures read. We hear scriptures preached to us. And that's only part of the equation that James um, points out. He says, hearing these words, hearing it preached is not enough. You also have to change in response to what you are hearing. So that brings us to James 1, 26 and 27, our passage for today. And I want to talk about two things today. Measuring ourselves and being measured by God. Measuring ourselves and then being measured by God. Let's talk about measuring ourselves. Verse 26 speaks about measuring ourselves. The way that we grade ourselves as Christians. The verse starts this way. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, okay, so by religious, what's he talking about? He's talking about people who take spiritual matters seriously, people who talk about God. If you were to look at them externally, you would see all kinds of seemingly good religious acts. These are people who attend religious services, James 2, verse 2. These are people who sign up and volunteer for needs in the church. They, they volunteer to be greeters at church. James 2, verse 3. These are people who interact with needy people. They volunteer for ministry opportunities. James 2, verses 15 and 16. These are people who are quick to talk about the things that they believe that are important. They're quick to say that they believe God exists. James 2, verse 19. 
They also seem very knowledgeable about their religion. They're studying the teachings of their faith. They teach other people about theology. James 3, verse 1. These are people who care about what's going on around them in the congregation. They actively identify sin in other people. James 4, verse 11. So he's addressing people who feel confident in their Christianity. But there is something that they do not do. James says that this person does not bridle his or her tongue. They don't have control of their words. The picture is this. Your words are like a horse, which is restless and feisty. The horse is strong. The horse wants to dart forward. But if you have your horse bridled, you can steer the horse. You can stop the horse. And so it is with your words. If you bridle your tongue, you control what comes out of your mouth. Our speech, the words that we speak to one another, is a major theme in James and in the entirety of Scripture. Because this is just part of our text today, let me just give you two identifiers for speech that's not bridled, speech that's not under control. One, unbridled speech comes out at the wrong time. Unbridled speech comes out at the wrong time. And then two, secondly, unbridled speech comes out with the wrong motive. Comes out at the wrong time, comes out with the wrong motive. Let's briefly look at these two. When I say that unbridled speech comes out at the wrong time, it's specifically that we speak too soon. But what is our experience? When we're dealing with someone, they mess up, and we feel like we just have to open our mouth and say something about it. We all know what that is like, especially if we're in the middle of a disagreement with someone who's accusing us. We know how there's this internal pressure that builds up inside of us. Humans have always had to deal with this. We're all alike. Even 3,000 years ago, in the book of Job, another person, like you, like me, uh, this young man, Elihu, he describes this feeling, this pressure that I have got to say something about what this person in front of me is doing. Elihu, in this conversation, is listening to Job and Job's three friends. They're going back and forth, and Elihu is getting frustrated, and he feels like he's got to put his own word into these discussions, this debate. And he describes that feeling of, I've got to say something. He says in Job 32, Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It's ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. The feeling is, if I don't speak, it's going to kill me. But the reality is, we can hold on to our other bodily functions for a long time. You can hold your words in also. Now, a few words earlier in our passage, James said those familiar words that were to be swift to hear, slow to speak. We tend to answer too quickly. 
But instead, James is teaching us, listen well. Restrain yourself from speaking. So, we are to be slow to speak. But secondly, we also speak with the wrong motives. We speak from hearts that are mixed. James 3 and 4 catalog the evil motives behind the unbridled speech that comes out. Motives such as pride. Motives such as discontentment. How does, how does pride speak? Well, when I'm filled with a sense of self-importance, I think that what my view is needs to be known and needs to be your view as well. And in that pride, I find it very easy to speak words of criticism, words of correction, and I tear people down. I tear them down when they're in front of me. I tear them down when they're not around, but other people are present. So James 4.11 tells us, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. James 5.9 says, do not grumble against one another, brethren. Have you grumbled about somebody else that's on the membership role in this congregation recently? Have you criticized them in front of another believer? James also addresses other motives, uh, motives such as discontentment, motives such as envy. We're unhappy with our status in the group. We're not as far in as we want. We're not high enough. We're unhappy perhaps with our financial state. We're unhappy with our skills. We're unhappy with our personalities. And we resent those who are better off than we are, more personally accomplished. Think of someone that you recently criticized when they weren't present. Is part of that criticism that you bear against them, is it that they have something that you wish for yourself? Perhaps they have more ability. They're better on their feet. They're more comfortable. They have smoother relationships with people. Maybe they have more influence, more connection. When we envy people, it's very easy for us to speak scornfully about them. We judge their motives. We make much of their faults, their stumblings. We think she might be a top performer at school or at work, but she's not very good with people one-on-one. -on -one. She's good with a group, but look at her relationships in the home. Now, how do we put this all together? James says that if anyone among you thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. It's as if James is saying, does anybody here think that she is spiritually mature? Does anyone here think that he has a great grasp of Reformed theology? Does anyone here think he is really committed to BSF or some, some good organization? Does anyone here think she has a very good grasp of Scripture? Well, if so, how do you do with James' test? Do you bridle your tongue? Or are you prone to speak, knowing at the very moment that the words come out, you shouldn't be speaking? Do you ever trash talk another person in the church? James is deeply convicting because he addresses our speech to one another and he addresses our speech about 
one another. Let me put a finer edge on this. James warns us about thinking that we are religious. Is there something going on right now that you feel strongly about? Do you think that you have a righteous cause, a godly cause, a good cause? And mixed up in that, you've got a complaint about someone or something in this church or in in your home. And you're certain that the other person, the other side, is in the wrong. You've carefully studied your position from Scripture. Well, you might be right. You might have a right assessment. You might stand for a just cause. But let me ask you this. Have you bridled your tongue in how you are handling the matter? Have you so controlled your part of the conversation so that you're not speaking from a desire to be praised or admired? Have you carefully never spoken evil about the other brother or sister beyond what was absolutely necessary to faithfully follow Matthew 18? Have you? Have you really? James warns us of the horrifying danger of self-deception. We can deceive our own hearts, he says. Self-righteous self-deception under the, under the banner of Reformed theology or under the banner of faithfulness to Scripture. That should be a terror to all of us. But especially when we're in conflict, self-deception comes easily. Things are flying fast. We're not slowing down. We don't parse our hearts. Now, how will you stand in the judgment in this cause that you so zealously held and promoted only to find out that you brought shame and dishonor on a righteous cause by your failure to keep your words and your heart in check. May God keep us from deceiving ourselves. Now, before we move on from this point, we have to ask this. Did Jesus ever bridle his tongue? Did Jesus bridle his tongue? Yes, very much so. Can you think of a place where Jesus bridled his tongue? Well, one one place is Isaiah 53. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. So wrong was being done to him. He was suffering. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. So people were accusing him wrongly accusing him. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When Jesus stood wrongly accused for us, wrongly accused in front of the court of the entire church, it says this in Matthew 26, the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. Jesus kept silent. Believer, that is why you can hold your tongue 
even when your spouse or your fellow member on the committee or on the team is wrongly, falsely accusing you. Jesus held his tongue so that he could be accused of your sins and so that he could be sacrificed in your place on the cross. And so it's fitting, it's fitting that we should so imitate him and you're able to imitate him because the spirit of that Jesus who held his tongue in silence for you, his spirit is now fully operative in you, dwelling within you and moving in you. So let's turn to verse 27. Verse 27 says that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. We've looked at how we measure ourselves in verse 26. In this verse, we see how we are measured by God. How does God measure us? James sets up a contrast here between self-approval in verse 26 and then God's approval, verse 27. We find it easy, don't we, to overestimate our own performance. We do it by setting these lower standards that we can easily achieve. But when we come in verse 27 to this phrase, pure and undefiled religion, James is going to give us another test. Uh, He's boiling down Christianity, applied Christianity for us, kind of in the same way that Jesus boils down all of the commands into the two great commandments. Well, here, James is going to to cut the pie a different way, and he boils it down into this this little verse. Uh, This phrase, religion before God and the Father, uh, is going to tell us who is weighing us, who is measuring us. And it's important to know that it's not just a generic test that's on a form that we're approaching. There's a person. What's the person like? It's speaking about God and how he has ongoing attention, ongoing judgment of what we here on earth are doing. God is both judge and father here in this verse. Judge and father. And if you survey the book of James, there are several aspects of the nature of God which are emphasized. First of all, and it's in this verse, first of all, God as our judge is frequently brought into view. James 3.1, God will judge our words. James 4.4, God's going to judge our loyalty to him. James 4.12, God is going to judge the hard words that we speak against one another. James 5.7, God is going to judge those who take advantage of the weaker people. Our lives are constantly playing out before God, the judge, who cares about our words and our ways with one another. Secondly, though, he's not only a judge. God is a father. And this is a a strange mix. Few of us, if any, have this kind of relationship in our human lives. One who's a judge, but also a father. He's also a father. Now, this is a very... um, This is a hard thing for many of us. I don't know what your earthly father was like or is like. You you may have received many hurts, many significant disappointments from your earthly father. But, But don't let that distort your understanding 
of what it means to have God as your father. If, if you're in Christ, God is your adoptive father who loves you. James 1.17, we started off with in our reading, it says that every good thing that's happened in your life, and I hope as you look back on your life, there are some things that have been good. James says that every good thing that ever happened to you in this life came from above, from the Father of lights. And this Father God is without variation. He's without shadow of turning. This Father is consistently good and generous. He's not prone to mood swings. He's predictably there when he gives his word to give you good whenever you ask him. He will not withhold any good thing from you. So it's this God and Father who defines true and pure religion, and it's this God and Father who will assess our lives. Well, how is he going to measure our lives? He gives us three tests. Three tests. The first test we just spoke about, verse 26. He's going to assess whether we bridle our tongues. The second test is this. It's found in the phrase, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Who are orphans? We don't have orphanages, really, the way we used to. Who are orphans? Orphans are people who are fatherless, people who have no one to provide for their basic needs. They have no one to protect them from abusers, from exploiters. You can be functionally, functionally an orphan, even if you're living in a home with adults. Widows are in a similar situation. In the time of James, in that day, the fatherless, the widows, were people whose lives were fragile at every level. They're needy. And as you read through your Bible with neediness in view, you're going to find dozens and dozens of references. Needy people, physically needy people. These are people who are near to the center of God's concerns. And this is not only a New Testament emphasis, it's many, many places in the Old Testament. Needy people are near the center of God's concerns. Now, what about the needy, the orphans, the widows? The word that James uses for visiting them, he says pure religion is visiting them in their distress. The word that he uses for visiting the fatherless and the widows it speaks of going in person to the place where the needy live. You're not waiting for the needy to come to you, to visit your congregation, to come to your ministry. You go to the place where they live. You knock on the door. If they welcome you in, you go into their apartment. The sense is not only stopping by to say hello, not just stopping by to check on them, the word for visiting also, it's more holistic. It involves knowing their situation and improving their situation. Knowing their neediness, helping, alleviating their neediness. This is the kind of visiting that's described in Matthew 26 in that familiar parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus is looking for people who will go out and personally visit those who lack clothing those who will personally visit, those who are sick, personally visit and improve, those who are in trouble with the law, 
and then improve their situation by giving clothes, by relieving loneliness, by sharing shame. So James adds to this description, you visit them in their trouble. We're to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. We go to them when things are chaotic, not only when things have stabilized. We go to them when things are messy, not when things seem easy to get a handle on. You could sum it up this way. Move towards needy people in crisis. Move towards needy people in crisis. And so we have to ask ourselves this. Who today, who here are the fatherless and the widow? Who in your community, in your neighborhood or where you work, are in crisis and in need. We are to do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith, right? Galatians 6, 10. Just after a little reflection, maybe as you're thinking here, uh, does a name, does a situation, does a family, uh, someone who is perhaps detached from the congregation, um, does a name, does a person come to mind? Someone who this, this whole virus lockdown, it's wearing on them. They're not doing well. Something is becoming unhinged for them, either materially, financially, relationally, emotionally. Whatever it is, whoever it is, pure religion is seen in moving towards needy people in their trouble. Now, brothers and sisters, I am sure, I am sure that some of you are doing this. You serve. You have personally entered the lives of others. You've been calling people. You've been reaching out to them. You've been giving rides. You're, you're engaging in conversation, talking with people. I want you to be encouraged. Be encouraged. The work is unending. The work may actually get criticized. People say, where were you? You weren't there for me. And you're thinking, I've been there for you. There's always another person who has real needs. But I want to encourage you. You're doing it before God the Father. He sees your good works and they please him. They please him very, very much. How do I know this? I know this because Jesus did those very things and the Father was well pleased with him. And as you imitate Christ, the Father will be pleased with you for what you are doing. Now, when did Jesus visit the fatherless and the widows in trouble? When did he do that? Well, let me give you some short uh, vignettes. Think of the widow in Nain in Luke 7. Jesus is traveling. He's doing ministry. He's got a meeting to go to. He's got an engagement to teach or to serve. And as he's traveling, he's on the way there. He crosses paths with a funeral procession. A widow's only son has died. And Jesus moves towards her and he improves her situation. He raises her son from the dead. Think of another situation where he moved towards the widow. Think of his mother Mary at the cross, John 19. Jesus sees that Mary is about to become a widow. He anticipates her need. And so he proactively adopts a son to care for Mary. He says, behold your son, behold your mother. 
John takes Mary into his home to care for her. Jesus is making provision for this widow. Now, you hear all this, you know, bridle your tongue, go to widows and orphans. Isn't this just moralism? Aren't you just dumping on my shoulders another command that I can't measure up to? I'm not, I'm not good enough. I fail. I get frustrated. I got my own problems. Isn't this just pushing for a bigger and bigger system of rules? Well, it could be. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. And here's where the gospel comes in. Ultimately, every single one of us, every single one of us is an orphan or a widow in life. All of us are orphans and widows in life. In John 14, Jesus calls us orphans. Ephesians 2 says that we were without God and without hope in the world. We were all alone, ultimate orphanage. That's an even deeper, hopeless and vulnerable solitude in life. But Jesus, but the Son of God came into the world and he lived among us and then he became like an orphan himself for us on the cross. How did he become an orphan? On the death, on the cross, it was as if Jesus lost his father. He cried out and said to his father, why have you forsaken me? He visited us who were orphans and he himself became orphaned so that we could be reconciled to God and become children with a father. And isn't that something you want to imitate? You don't help the needy because you have to. You help the needy because Jesus Christ came to you in your neediness, and he became needy so that you could become rich. And so now you just want to imitate that. The gospel gives us a heart that wants to show compassion. This isn't moralism. It's grateful mercy ministry. I received mercy. I want to show mercy. So James gives us three tests of true religion. Bridling the tongue. Secondly, moving towards needy people. The third one is this. Keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Keeping yourself unspotted from the world. What does this entail? Well, you might think that keeping unspotted from the world involves guarding yourself from worldly thinking. Critically filtering what you take in from screens, from podcasts, places like Colossians 2.8. Warn us against being deceived by the basic principles of the world, which are not according to Christ. Or keeping yourself unspotted from the world. It could involve guarding yourself against sinful indulgence of fleshly pleasures, fleshly desires, thinking of places like 2 Peter 2, 18 through 20. There it tells us, to keep ourselves from the pollutions of the world through knowing Christ, escaping from the lusts of the flesh, escaping from lewdness. Certainly, those are both things to avoid. Erroneous thinking, immoral practice. But I wonder, in the context of this book of James, I wonder if what James has in view when he talks about the world is what he develops later on in chapters 3 and 4. In James 3.15, he talks about an earthly 
way of living that's characterized by envy, an earthly way of living that's characterized by selfish ambition. This earthly, worldly way of living says, my desires are most important. I must be recognized by the group as the important person in the room. Respect me. James 4.1 says that this is where fights and wars come from between you, among you. These earthly, worldly ways of living are behind the strife that we experience among brothers and sisters. James is saying selfish desires, self-importance produce conflict. And he says... Keep yourself unstained from this. Keep yourself unspotted from this. Are you at odds with someone else in your life, with another believer in your life? When conflict arises, when conflict arises, it's useful to check your own heart. Not their heart, your own heart. When we have meltdowns in ministry, and if you are truly and personally engaged in ministry, you're going to have meltdowns. That's just normal if you're actually engaged in it. When we have meltdowns in ministry, could it be that it comes from a selfish desire for recognition or for control? When we have disagreement at home over money or time use, could it be that the arguments are more intense or more heated than they, they really should be because of a selfish desire for respect or for priority. Well, how do we break free of this self-love, this self-importance that so easily rears up in our hearts? Again, the gospel has the solution for this. What happened in the gospel? Jesus the one who deserved all respect and all recognition. Jesus, the all-important one, emptied himself of every self-benefiting position. He emptied himself and became a low, low person. He was on the top, but he made himself lower and lower until he was finally viewed as a felon. He was convicted of a felony. And he died in that low position for selfishly ambitious and rebellious people. But then he rose from the dead and he gave them new life. And when you believe this, and when you seize on to this as salvation for yourself, you admire what Jesus did. And in the deepest way, you admire and you want to imitate his selfless pouring out of himself for undeserving, selfish, proud people. That's how the gospel of Jesus can make you unselfish. Let's pray. We come before you, our God and our Father. We ask that we would measure ourselves as you measure us. Our words do matter. Our care for the needy matters. Our selfless living matters. Make the work of Jesus who gave himself for us, make it to change us today and in this week, we pray. 
in his name. Amen.